Well, dear family of God, good morning. Uh, with thanksgiving in my heart, along with Pastor Mike, I welcome you to worship. Uh, perhaps with me, you're trying to catch up with time, uh, moving through the fall and now approaching winter, moving from Thanksgiving uh, into the season of Advent, uh, eventually coming to Christmas. But we now anticipate the arrival of our King, Jesus Christ. Now, with the sermon series, Thy Kingdom Come, from the Gospel of Matthew, we turn this morning to Matthew chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 33 to 46, uh, and we'll be considering the sermon title is The Beloved Son and His Kingdom. Now, Jesus tells this parable as he was being confronted by the religious leaders in the temple uh, just a few days after he made his triumph- triumphal entry into the city and just a few days prior to his death on the cross. Now, between those two events, Jesus cleansed the temple of its merchandisers. Um, it, he healed the blind and the lame in the temple courts. He received worship as the Messiah, and he taught the people within its walls. And so the religious leaders were wanting to know by what authority he dared to do such things. And to follow up on this challenge of the religious Jewish leaders, Jesus, of course, is proclaiming to be the source of all authority. He tells this parable of the tenants of the vineyard who had wrongfully assumed ownership of that which was not their own. Now, this particular parable uh, occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels. There's only two others that do that. It's the parables of the sower and the mustard seed. Uh, the parable, though, does answer that the leaders had asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And he knows that he is the beloved son Uh, and he is going to be the heir of the kingdom. Now, to understand the parable, as I begin to read it, just know the main characters. The master of the house, the owner of the vineyard, is God. The vineyard is Israel. The tenant farmers are religious leaders of Israel that day. And the servants of the owner are the prophets. And the son, the heir of the owner, is Jesus Christ. So with that, please now hear the reading of God's word. This is Matthew 21, beginning at verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. He went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the, to the tenants to get its, his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. 
And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on everyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, give us grace each moment to draw our life from you, walking in your steps, enjoying fellowship with your beloved Son, our Savior, and with each other in the kingdom of your Son. As we now give attention to your word, open the eyes of our heart to behold the wonders of your love. Holy Spirit, pour light upon these words which you cause to be inspired. Write them upon our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, today, as Pastor Mike has uh, shared with us, we enter the Advent season, praising God for the blessing of our hope in Christ. And yet we realize that the Thanksgiving and Christmas seasons are not always easy. We navigate family relationships and many remember those whom we have lost. We embrace the beauty of the coming of Christ, yet couple this reality with the reality of his life and death for our salvation. There's a balance that we aspire. Biblical contrasts demonstrate how the advent of God's Son into this world speaks hope and joy for abundant life, while also recognizing the great cost to our Savior for our wholeness. This reminds us that there are, there are a number of biblical troops, truths that we keep in balance so that we do not risk the error of distorting them. We see mercy more wonderfully when contrasted with the severity of judgment. Grace will be better accepted and embraced when we see it in contrast with God's right, righteous wrath. The gift of salvation is best embraced when understanding the depravity of sin. The beauty of heaven is seen against the sadness of hell. We embrace two central moments in the life of Jesus Christ, his carnation and his crucifixion as part of God's divine plan for our salvation. So we celebrate Christmas in light of Easter. We treasure Bethlehem in view of Jerusalem. In our text, Jesus tells a story that entails judgment and mercy and grace and wrath, Christmas and Easter. He tells us a story that that's meaning can scarcely be doubted, that God sent his son. His son died for you and for me, but he rose again in triumph and glory. So as we consider the beloved son in his kingdom, we will see God's goodness, his glory and his grace. And then we'll close with what it means to respond to the beloved Son and His kingdom with grateful hearts. But let us start with God's goodness. We see this in beginning in verse 33 through 36. For this first verse here describes a man who planted a vineyard. He built a hedge around that vineyard to keep out the wild animals. He dug a wine press to, to collect the juice that would be harvested from the grapes grown in the vineyard itself. He put a tower so that a watchman might keep a diligent eye on the vineyard so that it would be protected. He placed the vineyard in the hands of men assigned to farm it. Then he left it in their care. Now in the parable, the master went away. 
He entrusted the care of the vineyard to tenants. In a rural farming community, most would understand this concept. People may entrust their land to someone else who will rent the land for a flat fee or perhaps for a portion of the return. And that is what happens here. Now, when it came time for the tenants to pay the rent, the owner of the vineyard sent his servants to collect what was due. Yet the tenants refused. They beat one servant, they killed another, and stoned yet another. Those listening, though, in the temple would know that Jesus was referring to Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses. For throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the vineyard or vine of the Lord. It was an image that was so clear that the temple was adorned with vines. Israel as a nation was founded by God in his goodness. God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he made them into a people. He is the one who put Moses in a position of influence and used him to deliver the Israelites in a miraculous way from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. God wrote Israel's law He was to be the focus of their worship. They were God's chosen people. Now, in God's goodness, the Lord entrusted the spiritual harvest of Israel to the tenants, to the religious leaders of the people, even though this God never went away. The master did, but not the Lord. These leaders were to teach the people and lead them in a harvest. And what was the harvest? It was a life of worship and godly living. And when God's people sinned over the years, God sent prophets to call the people to repentance and godly living. And instead of cooperating with the prophets, as was their responsibility, the people rather beat them up and some they killed. Elijah was exiled. Isaiah was probably sawn in two. John the Baptist was beheaded. And so in the book of Hebrews, we read that some were tortured Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and indeed dens and caves of the earth. Again, Jesus is sharing the parable while standing in the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount. He is speaking to the religious leaders and reminding them that God had indeed been good to Israel. Yet the truth of this time is summarized in one verse. This is from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And yet when I look for it, To yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Even with God's goodness and love to Israel, she did not return proper love to him. Instead, Israel yielded wild grapes. God, though, continued to care for his vine, to bless his vine, to protect the vine, to dress his vine. And in spite of their waywardness, Israel would be forced to concede that truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Psalm 73. There is no question that all who trust in Christ in this room today would have to confess that God has been good to you. For there was a day when He came to us in our slavery, not to Pharaoh, but rather we were slaves to our sin. 
He dug us up by the roots and he transplanted us into a new country in his kingdom. God has been good to us. So with grateful hearts, along with the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, we give thanks to the Father for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transformed us or transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We add to our salvation all the blessings He has given us, add to the fact that He is always with us, that He loves us eternally, that He meets our needs. Ten thousands other truths that we may add, we must confess that God is good to us. And yet from God's goodness, we see His amazing grace. Matthew 21, verses 37 to 41. At this point... God's history with his people is truthful, yet remains a little bit of a curiosity when considered from a human perspective. After rejecting all the servants, the prophets, the owner determines to send his own beloved son. The owner believed the tenants would respect the son as an extension of those who own the land. And yet that's not what happened. The tenants apparently thought that the arrival of the son meant that the father had died. The law stated that if someone died without an heir, the land could go to those who currently lived on the land. So these men saw the son and concluded it was their opportunity to own the vineyard for themselves. So they murder the son. Now Jesus is painting a very clear picture of himself and the tenants. Jesus did not see himself as another prophet or a good teacher. He pictures himself as the beloved son. He claims a unique relationship with God the Father. He is the son of God. But Jesus also understood what was going to happen to him. This was not a surprise. Unlike the master in the story, God was not taken by surprise by what the leaders did to Jesus. He knew these men were plotting to kill him. The desire of the religious leaders to kill Jesus was an act of rebellion against the very God that they claimed to serve. Now, the religious leaders thought that by killing the son, they could have the vineyard for themselves. These religious men would never have admitted it, but they wanted to be their own God. They wanted to run the show. They wanted everything for themselves. They wanted the wealth, the glory, the power. And they did not want to share it with anyone else, especially if that person was uneducated, a carpenter without a pedigree from Nazareth. They could not stand the thought of acknowledging Jesus as Messiah and God. What they failed to understand, dear family, what so many people still fail to understand today is that when you get the beloved son, you get the vineyard and everything in it. When you get the son, you become a child of God. When you get the son, you become a joint heir with him. When you get the son, you have all the blessings of heaven that is offered to us. When you have Jesus, you have everything. Abundant life, eternal life. And all these things come for the Lord and His goodness. All these things come from Him, from His goodness and grace to you and to me. 
If we were to receive what we deserve, we would remain dead in our sin. Yet, praise God, we are not dead. We are alive because we trust in the one who died for the forgiveness of our sin and was raised to life for our salvation. We breathe God's air and enjoy God's blessings. We are partakers of God's grace today. So we praise God for His goodness. We praise Him for His grace through Jesus Christ, His beloved Son. Now let us see His glory. Verses 42 to 46. Jesus abruptly changes the image from the vineyard to the cornerstone. He tells us in verse 42, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now he's quoting Psalm 110 verses 22 and 23. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and giving to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, again, in this story, the wicked tenant farmers will kill the son, but God will raise up the beloved son to be the chief cornerstone, just as his word had promised. The religious leaders of Israel thought that they could get rid of the owner's son by killing him. Little did they know, or that they should have known from Psalm 118, that God would raise his son from the dead and make him the cornerstone of the church and of our faith and install him In the chief place of honor and glory. The one who would be rejected and crucified will come back from the dead. Send the Holy Spirit into the world and become the object of devotion of his people. One day Christ will claim his place on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now God's certain final triumph in Christ is glorious. And family, in proclaiming God's glory, there is great comfort, for we know that human sin will never thwart the sovereignty of God. Our sin can never thwart the sovereign purposes of God. We are responsible for our sin, yet God sovereignly ordains everything that comes to pass. He rightfully judges those who do not submit to His purposes. And yet, as we yield to Him, there is profound goodness and grace and glory. As Paul proclaims in Romans chapter 11, note then the kindness and the severity of God. God determined before the foundation of the world that Christ would die, yet those who wickedly condemned and crucified Jesus in accord with God's sovereign plan, they would be held responsible. God always triumphs. Those who oppose Him always lose. God's side will win In the end, and sure enough, following the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 5, the end of the story is at best grim, but understandable. When the master of the vineyard learned the tenants had killed his son, he assembled his forces, he destroyed the tenants, and gave the land to new tenants. Every one of us sympathizes with the actions of the owner. In fact, some of us may even applaud what he has done because it is just. And so we come to verse 45 when the chief priest 
And the Pharisees heard this parable, these parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So the story as told by Jesus Christ was quite quite clear. These men who heard this parable understood that Jesus spoke against them. They knew that he was predicting God's judgment if they continued the course of action, yet they persisted in seeking a way to seize him. They feared the multitude. They should have feared God and responded to Christ with reverence and awe, yet they did not. So we come to this conclusion. How do we respond to what happened some 2,000 years with grateful hearts? So far for, so for us, what do we take away as we think about this last week of Jesus' death and then His resurrection? Well, three things, three dynamics. First, Jesus is reminding us that we have been given a great privilege. Everything we have is given to us by God. We are His stewards. We face the same danger as the tenants. We can take God's blessings for granted and begin to think we have gained all that we have on our own. We can resist our rebellion or obligation before God and try to overthrow His authority in our lives. Our responsibility, though, before God is to care for the things and for the people that He has entrusted to us. It is our job to follow this, His Word and to live the way He wants us to live. It is our job to carry the news of God's kingdom faithfully to others as good stewards of His grace. Now, I know it's easy to lose sight of this. We become so preoccupied with daily activities and the mad pursuit of personal success and perhaps even comfort that we lose sight of the big picture of living in God's kingdom. Like the tenants, we want to live our own Our lives are on our own terms, determine our own destiny, pull our own strings, even if it means that we rebel against the Lord, even if we don't realize what we're doing. And yet when we forget that life is given by God, and even when we begin to rebel, we can embrace the beloved Son and His kingdom with thanksgiving because He is there with us. Second, Jesus, in these verses, is also calling us to repent of our compromises and to return to Him as the Lord of all. We confess our sin, and we do this consistently, but I think it's good to examine our hearts daily, but we confess our sin. We humble ourselves and acknowledge that we are going in the wrong direction. We see our tendency to be like the tenants. We don't like to think of ourselves as God-haters, but there is a strain of hatred in all of us when we seek our own way. We might not admit it, but it is revealed in the way that sometimes we dig in our feet and refuse to live by God's standards. We also need to seek Him. We do this by crying out to Him in prayer to change our heart. We seek Him by searching the Bible for direction. Jesus is the cornerstone. So if we do not build our lives on Him, we are building with defective materials on the foundations that will not stand. And if you do not know Jesus this day, 
Oh, dear person, please turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. Trust Him as your Lord and Savior. And then give Christ the honor due His name. We turn from our wicked ways. It's not enough to give great testimonies or make great boasts. Anybody can put on a show. Truly honoring Christ means choosing Him above all others. It means going His way even though the rest of the world is going another. And thirdly, this beloved Son in His kingdom should inspire our worship. One of the marvels of the story is the incredible and enduring patience of the master of the vineyard. He kept sending servants patiently and lovingly. God has not treated us as our sin deserves either, dear family. He is extended to all of us a profound mercy and grace. He is willing to forgive us even when we find it hard to forgive ourselves. Every believer here today is here because of God's mercy and His grace. When we turn to our own way, God pursued you and me. He sent faithful men and women to teach and instruct us. He brought us our lives into our lives, examples of godliness so that we could see what it meant to follow Him. He has given us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to enlighten us. He has placed us in positions where we could experience His love through the Spirit and through the kindness of others. In fact, it's possible that God has brought you to this place this day because He wants to be intimate with you. He wants you to understand what's at stake. He wants you to understand that it's good to stop running from Him and welcome Him instead. He wants you to stop fighting Him so that you can know the wonders of His love. Oh, dear family, may we stop running away, come to the One who has been pursuing us and waiting for us. Those who do so will have only one regret. Their only regret will be that they wish they would have come to the beloved Son and His kingdom sooner. Their life is sometimes hard. We know this even in the seasons of Thanksgiving, Advent, and Christmas. We also know that God's goodness, grace, and glory are extravagant. It is only right and fitting that we love and worship Him. For this is natural, it is appropriate. For God has given us the greatest gift of all, a relationship with His beloved Son, that will continue forever. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise You for Jesus, Your beloved Son and His kingdom. Oh, may we be willing to respond to Your goodness, Your love, Your grace, and Your glory as stewards of Your grace. May we be a people who humbly confess the times of our wandering when we fail to yield to our God and Savior, our cornerstone. May we joyfully worship You in spirit and in truth each day and every day. For all the glory goes to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.